I'm Jennifer Grayson, and this is the Uncivilized Podcast. Welcome to the very first episode of the Uncivilized Podcast. I'm Jennifer Grayson. Thank you so much for checking out this new show, which I'm really excited about. This is something very new for me. So let me just tell you a little bit about myself and why I've created the Uncivilized Podcast. I'm an environmental journalist. I'm an author. I have spent the past three years writing a book called Unlatched about not only our modern day disconnection from the natural world, but how we've become disconnected really from our own inherent human biology. And that experience really opened my eyes to how the life we modern humans have come to live in the past century, uh, really just the past 150 years is virtually unrecognizable to the life our human ancestors lived for 99.9% of our time so far on Earth. So not to mention, you know, the result of of that, of becoming so out of sync with our human biology and the natural world we have evolved to live with, um, the result is that we're now facing monumental challenges in terms of our very survival as a human species. But so here's the irony. Um, I've been writing about all this, about how disconnected we are from the natural world. I have been fascinated since I was a little girl by how we lived in earlier human cultures, in indigenous cultures. But you know, in my own life, I'm living this very hectic 21st century existence. I do not live in a cabin off the grid somewhere, despite the fact that that sounds really nice right about now. Um, Despite the fact that I love spending time in the outdoors, that I want to live a life more aligned with nature. I live in the middle of Los Angeles, and I have spent really my entire adult life living in cities. And so it's this constant struggle for me of how do I live the life that I want to live in the middle of this all? And I have two young daughters. I can see every day what the effects are of them not having green spaces, let alone wild spaces for them to run around in, of having to navigate a city that's overpopulated and polluted, and our our lives that are becoming more and more overloaded and monopolized by technology. We all know, I know you can feel it, we are staring down a future that's becoming more automated, more virtualized, more hyper-industrialized, more urbanized. And so what does the future look like for all of us? Like, what, what does the future look like for my daughters? And this is not the world that I want for them. This isn't the world that I want to live in. And lately, it seems like this relentless march toward progress isn't even being driven by us, but, you know, by insidious forces. So... What I want to do here on the Uncivilized Podcast, and I know that was a very long-winded intro to get to the point, but what I want to do here on the Uncivilized Podcast is reimagine a new way forward, one that's not only more aligned with the natural world, but more aligned with our own biology and how we were really meant to live as human beings, uh, the life that we really want to choose for ourselves to live. So that is what we will be exploring here every week. And I have a lineup of interviews for you this first season with some truly fascinating guests, um, historians, scientists, anthropologists, traditional skills experts. These are people who are rethinking every aspect of what we've come to accept as the norm in our modern day existence and rethinking all of that and forging ahead with an alternate path. So it's I promise this is not going to be doom and gloom. We're going to have a lot of fun each week exploring these new ways of life. And so speaking of fun and speaking of fascinating people, that brings us to today's episode with Sean Critchfield, who is the lead instructor for the Wisdom Keepers Apprentice of the Wild program here in Los Angeles, where he teaches children and their parents outdoor skills, survival skills, indigenous skills, Um, I am among those parents and children, my two children, (laughs) my two girls have been taking his biweekly class since last spring. And really these days, it is the thing we are looking forward to most, uh, living here in Los Angeles because we get to go out into the forest, um, into these amazing wild spaces that surround LA and we're just having so much fun. We're learning how to identify a wild plants. Um, My girls are seven and four, and last class we were working with knives, which, of course, they loved. It was a little harrowing for me, but we had a lot of fun. And so you're going to hear in a second, Sean is just, he's a really 
he's not only teaching all these wonderful skills, but he's just a really special human being who's doing such a unique thing by being an outdoorsman, not in the middle of the bush somewhere, but by teaching so many people these skills of self-reliance here in Los Angeles, where we really, really need to reconnect with the world around us. So I just want to thank you before we jump into the interview. Thank you for tuning into my very first episode. Like I said, this is new for me. This is a new medium for me. I've been writing in front of a computer for the past three years. So I hope you'll stick with me as I evolve, as the show evolves, as hopefully we all evolve together over this first season. And so I just hope you enjoy this episode, uh, this very first episode of the Uncivilized Podcast. Sean Critchfield has been an outdoorsman for as long as he can remember. His father began teaching him bushcraft skills as a child, and it has been a lifelong pursuit since then. Now a seasoned educator, Sean is passionate about bringing that skill set to the next generation, specializing in the fundamentals of self-reliance and encouraging a gentle wandering into the spiritual side of the natural world. His hope is that students who spend time with him will learn skills that are easily understood and replicated quickly, while also gaining a deeper understanding of the natural flow of the land around them. Sean is a Nevada naturalist, and he himself has a deep understanding of desert and high desert regions. He is a rock climber, hiker, teacher, artist, and poet. Sean, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. I feel like my bio should always be read by you. That was amazing. Oh, thank you. Well, (laughs) (laughs) it's a beautiful bio. And um, I just I want to add for our listeners that you're also the lead instructor for the Wisdom Keepers School Apprentice of the Wild program here in Los Angeles, teaching over 200 children ancient skills and the joys of wilderness connection, which is how I was lucky enough to meet you with my two daughters. Absolutely. Yeah, it's an awesome program. And, and by the way, your daughters are awesome. Thank you. They, they are so <laughs> looking forward to starting the new season. I can't wait. Yeah, I'm really excited. Um, and I just, you know, before we get started, I just want to take a moment to just tell you, I'm sorry to put you on the spot, but I just want to tell you what a huge impact you have had on my life uh, since I've, you know, just the few short months that I've known you. Um, we've talked a little bit about how I've kind of struggled with my life here in Los Angeles for the past decade, feeling, mm-hmm. you know, how disconnected you feel from the natural world here and how increasingly modern and hectic our life is becoming. And, you know, you've really helped connect me and my daughters to the world around us in a way I, I just really never thought was possible and find a sense of community. And so I'm really, really grateful. And in a lot of ways, you've been the inspiration for this podcast. So I just wanted to just take a quick moment to say thank you. Thank you so much. That means that means a ton to me. You know, uh, it's interesting. Uh, I owe a lot of thanks to um, Chris Morosky, who is actually the main instructor for Wisdom Keepers and Apprentice of the Wild is kind of a branch off of that. And, uh, and I'm grateful to him for connecting us. And you know, it's interesting. One of my dear, dear friends is uh, Native American. He's Blackfeet. And I remember at one point having a conversation with Tim uh, standing in a small neighborhood. And he looked around and he said, isn't this a beautiful forest? And I kind of looked at him funny and said, "Uh, uh, is this a forest? And he turned around and he said, look at all the trees. And I realized that we were on a street that had a lot of trees. And um, so I think that it can also be something that we bring with us. So even in this crazy, hectic city, you know, there's these little pockets of beauty where we can always step away and reconnect if we need to and ground ourselves. Yeah, I love that. And I, I feel that too, since working with you, just sort of having an awareness of the plants around me now and the just the identification that you work on with your students about learning what's edible and what's not. It's just sort of changed my view of my environment, even though I live in super urban Los Angeles. It's just kind of like, you know how I describe it? So I think I've mentioned before that I'm a classically trained soprano. Mm-hmm. And so for most of my life, I whenever I listen to music, I would always just listen to the melody line. Mm-hmm. And then my husband is a musician and he's a producer and he plays guitar and bass. And he, he said, well, have you ever listened to like the bass line and the other instruments? <laughs> like, can you pick <laughs> out a bass line? And I was like, uh, no, I'm always listening to, you know, just the nice voice on top. And since that, I, I listen to music, I would kind of describe it as vertical. So mm-hmm. whenever I listen, it's like, this all it's this whole view rather than this linear view and that's kind of how i feel since i've been taking your class when i walk around la and when my girls walk around la it's like we see everything not just 
the path on the way to school. Does that make sense? That's amazing. Yeah, it does. Absolutely. I um I did a skills course out on the East Coast, and I was really lucky to work with a, just a brilliant forger. Um, she's one of the best forgers in the country, and her name is Carmen Corradino. And uh, I remember when I went out there, I was going to learn a ton of different skills and hone some skills that I already had. And I was so excited for camouflage and tracking and traps. And uh, I didn't know that the thing that was going to blow my mind was going to be the plant walk. And uh, I remember going out on a plant walk with Carmen. And I always had this this uh, preconceived notion that foraging was, you know, I'm going to walk for a mile in the woods and then suddenly I'm going to come across this one tiny little bush that's got four berries on it. And I'll gather those four berries and then walk another few miles before I find something else that's edible. And, you know, we walked 15 feet into the woods and she stopped and started pointing at things and saying, saying, that's edible, that's medicinal, that's utilitarian, that's both edible and medicinal, that's all three. And then we'd walk another 15 feet and she'd start again. And I realized that kind of the same thing you were talking about, that I now look at the woods differently, that before it was this barren place. And now I'm, I realize more and more that everything that we need to live is there and it's there in abundance. And really, it's almost like the city in a lot of ways has become the survival environment because if you don't have money in a city, typically you perish. But in the woods, it's all there. We just have forgotten how to how to listen and how to receive it. Right, right. And that's the other thing I've realized too is just the astounding lack of knowledge that most of us have in the modern day world and how we're so close to it all being lost. And so I, I really... You know, I want to hear about your journey and how you came to this whole world, because I know you mentioned in your bio, you said your father started teaching you this as a child. So I was just wondering if you could, can we start at the beginning with you? Just because you have such an amazing history. I just kind of want to start at the beginning and find out how you, how you came to this world, how your eyes were first opened. So can you sure. tell me a little bit about, about your father and, and the bushcraft skills and just start at the beginning? Sure, sure. Yeah, my my father is military. He's retired Air Force, and uh, he is. Um, you know, he when I when I think about being a good man, my father is kind of the mold that I try to press myself into. You know, and um, he is just a brilliant man. And uh, ever since we were little, I remember growing up around Desolation Valley and in Yosemite, and and um, every chance we got, Dad so you would moved around a lot. Yeah, yeah. As I, I was an Air Force brat, lived all over the world, did some traveling overseas, just constantly, you know, at a new place. And I'm grateful for it. Some people feel really uprooted and unstable, but it really gave me um, a keen sense of wanderlust. And I consider that to be my ability to adapt and change and to desire to constantly move. I, I consider that a, an attribute, you know, a benefit. Um, so, yeah. So, dad would always take us out to the woods. And, uh, you know, I remember being probably eight and going on a hike with my dad and uh, he would point out things on the ground, different tracks, talk about different locations and where we could build shelters and things like that. And I remember one day um, showing us deer tracks and then following the track line and not five feet from the deer tracks, there was a boot print on the path and my dad knelt down and he looked at it and he said, um, this is man. He's the most dangerous animal out here because he has guns. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and it was uh, it's something that I remember even later, um, I took that forward where when I'm teaching tracking, a lot of times um, people will see a little bit of print from a, from a boot, you know, like boot print or boot tread, and they'll think it's an animal track, and I'll point out that it's a boot tread, and they'll always say, oh, I thought I found a track, and I always kind of chuckle and say, well, you, you did find a track, you're, you're absolutely <laughs> tracking. You know? And it's an animal, as my daughter likes to point out too. The human. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And so um, from there, all of my hobbies have always been wilderness centric. I wasn't as um, aware of the primitive skills and wilderness survival stuff until later, but I was a, an avid fly fisherman and still am a uh, rock climber. I got into summit hiking, um, backpacking, uh, you know, just every, every hobby that I took up always was something that drug me out to the woods and uh, then it was um, later, 
I read uh, a few books, you know, of course, the books that we that we all read, My Side of the Mountain and Hatchet and things like that. And as yeah. I started reading those books, those became really important to me. And then uh, I went and I took the skills course. And it was after that skills course that that really I found myself deciding that I wanted to dedicate to this this way of life and really understand how to listen to our mother and receive everything that the earth's trying to give us. And how old were you when you took that course? Um, I was... Are we still, like a, still in childhood here? Are you in your 20s? No, no, no. Yeah, I'm in my 20s. I, w I was in my early 20s. Um, at that point, I could follow a decent track line. I could, you know, start um, a fire with a, with a single match. I knew how to do feather sticks and things like that. But I definitely didn't know friction fire. I definitely didn't know shelter building. I was not a super proficient tracker, you know. But I mean, this... This skills world is so funny. It's one of those things where I don't care who you are. The more you learn, the less you know. You know, it's um, I consider myself a baby in this in this skill set. But everyone I talk to, no matter how skilled they are, if you ask them, most of them will say they feel like a baby too. You know. And do you think do you think that's something because of the modern age that we live in that there's just still so much for all of us to learn? Or do you think? Um, you know, earlier humans and our ancestors had a different kind of view of learning. Oh, absolutely. I definitely think they had a different view of learning. Um, but I want to be fair to both sides. So let me let me do my best to answer both sides of that. Okay. Um, I, I think that a lot of the way that we're learning now is a transference of ideas. So we have someone that stands and tells us this is how you do it. And then we are tested on how well we can recite that information. Um, so if you're if a instructor tells you that you know, Justin Bieber is the greatest musician that ever lived. When that question comes up on a test, whether you agree with it or not, the correct answer is the greatest musician who ever lived is Justin Bieber, you know? And <laughs> so, hopefully, hopefully not, but yeah, <laughs> I like yeah. the example. Yeah. So, so it's a transference of ideas, you know, where I believe that um, before it was a transformation of lives. So it was more about um, let's learn together there is no student, there is no teacher, we're all teaching at the same time, we're all learning at the same time, and in many cases what we're learning is practical and relevant to the way that we're living. Um, I think that the flip side of that is that um, now we have this ability to go, okay, the way that the Chumash do this is entirely different from the way that the Comanche do this, you know, the Plains people. Right. Um, and so now I have the ability to learn both ways, you know, and I think that that's broadening the the pool. I feel like um, many of these nations knew exactly what they needed to, to, to survive in the area that they were in and to thrive in the area that they were in. And that was what was necessary. So I think that also the body of knowledge has expanded because uh, the the availability to information is is much more readily available to us via the internet, via YouTube. You know, now um, we have the ability to access information at our fingertips and our, it's in our pocket all the time, you know. So I think that it's fair to say that I don't want to say that that way of learning was better. It was a, it was different, you know. Right. And it's it's also worth noting that it was, like you said, adapted to that specific environment, Whereas mm -hmm. now it's really overwhelming because it's like, where do I even start? And so many of us are so mobile to begin with. So like, even if I take a class with you and learn the plants that are native to Southern California, like then I move to the Midwest and that's not necessarily applicable anymore. And so it's, there's just so much information to absorb, um, which is why I Absolutely. think it's really interesting. You know, I'd love you to talk more about the fact that you're a Nevada naturalist so mm -hmm. I had never heard that before I met you. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's, so tell me more about that. So that means that y you know the region of Nevada and that specific landscape. Could you tell me more about what that is and how you came to specialize in that particular field? Sure, sure. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. You know, there are plants that, that you can find anywhere in North America that, that um, you're going to find everywhere. But even moving from Nevada out to California... Most of my, my plant knowledge, I had to start back at zero. You know, you get easier at picking it up and continuing on with it. Um, 
it becomes a muscle and the more you work it, the easier it is to remember. Um, but the Nevada Naturalist Program, and I believe that there's one in most states, um, is actually a program that you can get certified in where you have to learn about um, about taxonomy and geology and the environment and water tables and the plant life, the flora, the fauna. And it's a intensive course that you go through and then at the end you're tested and you receive your certification and then you have to do a certain amount of volunteer work throughout the year in order to keep your certification. And uh, I know that they have a California naturalist program as well. So um, that was, it was interesting because I had already begun to study the area but there were things that I was most interested in. And uh, it wasn't until I took that course that I became really fascinated with the rocks and things like that, that I had a tendency to ignore, you know, unless I could flint nap it, I didn't really care what it was called, you know, so that definitely broadened my horizons. I'm relatively sure that there's a California naturalist program. So if that sounds interesting to you, and you're listening to this in California, look it up and attend the courses. I, the naturalist programs are fantastic. That's great information for our listeners. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So, so let's go back to your journey when you're so when you said that you really started getting into this world. Um, mm -hmm. Tell me, tell me more about that. Tell me about um, were you were you doing this? I know it sounds silly, but were you doing this for a living? Or was this something that was a pursuit on the side? Talk mm -hmm. to me more about how you know, when you came into this whole world. Sure. Well, I feel like this can also address something that you said earlier that I think is important is that um, part of getting into this, if it's something you're interested in, is don't worry about um, where should I start? Which which plant should I learn first? What skill set should I firm, uh, learn first? Because I promise you that all of them lead to each other. They're all interconnected. You know, if um, fire is really fascinating to you, then you're going to have to learn how to carve because you're going to need to have to learn the carving set. If you're going to learn to carve, you're going to need to know which trees are softwood and which trees are hardwood and which trees are good for friction fire and which ones aren't and what parts of them to use. So now you're going to have to learn taxonomy. And so, and that, ju that chain just continues on. If you chase the rabbit hole deep enough with any of these skills, they just all lead to each other. So that's kind of the way it happened for me was I just became more and more fascinated and the more I learned again, the less I knew. And then uh, finally, um, you know, I, it was all a hobby, a pretty passionate hobby, but it was all a hobby. And I was actually an actor in my former life and uh, um, found out about this course. It's the uh, tracker course that's up in the Pine Barrens in New Jersey. And the skills in that course are very sound. Uh, everything that they tell you that you're going to learn skills-wise, you absolutely will learn. And uh, so I went to the tracker course and came back with a decent foundation. And that was it. That was really where the change took place. And then I was lucky enough to meet Chris Morosky, who I consider to be my mentor. And, you know, much of my philosophy is very much in, in line with Chris. Yeah, and I think you bring up something important, which is the idea mm -hmm. of, of mentors, because I mm -hmm. think, at least for me, um, it's really one of the few ways you can, uh, how you can really get into this world and start to learn. I mean, I can read in a book about how to build a shelter, but it's not the same as seeing it done in front of you. And so, yeah, I, could you talk more about uh, the role of mentors in your life and, and tell me about your relationship with Chris and, and how you came to meet him? Yes, absolutely. Um, that's a funny, that's a fun story. Um, I, I totally agree with you. The, um, so for example, the Bodril fire kit, I learned to do the Bodril fire kit from books. Uh, and most of the descriptions that you get in books are really bad. Like one of the big, uh, jokes that I love in the community is the only perfect survival shelter is in a survival guide. And so, yeah. <laughs> and so I struggled a lot with this fire kit and it took me a year and a half to learn to get my first coal and I can teach someone in an afternoon. So just now, to back up for a second, what does that mean? Get your first coal. So when you're doing a friction fire, um, what you have to do is you have to, uh, create enough dust by rubbing wood, two pieces of wood together uh, to fill a notch. And then that notch eventually has to get hot enough to turn into a coal. And then from there, you know, we've all seen Survivor Man where they put it in the tinder bundle and they blow it into flames. So what they're transferring is the coal that they've heated up. 
And so it took me a year to to successfully create a coal that I could then turn into a fire. A year. Wow. Yeah, a year a year and some change. I usually say between a year and a year and a half. I don't remember exactly. But um, that was all me teaching myself from the ground up. But it's interesting now because I can listen to someone doing a uh, using a Bodril set. And most of the time by listening, I can tell you what they're doing wrong. And um, wow. so people can, yeah, they can now learn in, a, in an afternoon from me how to get a coal and blown into a fire. But um, they're benefiting off of a year and a half of my failures. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah. I, would you, would you mind telling us a little bit about, I love hearing failure stories just mm-hmm. because I've had so many insane ones in my life. Um, and they usually make for great stories and you're a great storyteller. So do you <laughs> want to, would you, do you have any off the top of your head? Like that you'd love to share about as you are learning all these skills, just things that were not working for you or times that you failed miserably, because I think we can learn so much from that. Oh no, I absolutely agree. I believe that as people, we should strive for failure, that all growth comes from failure. You know, pain is the touchstone of spiritual progress in my opinion. And, <laughs> and I believe that, you know, um, you know, the example that I use at the kids when I teach is video games. I say, you know, when you beat level one, you don't stop and say, well, that's it. You know, you move on to level two. And then if you beat level two, you move on to level three. And eventually you're going to hit a level you can't beat. And if you're committed to the game, you continue to play that level until you finally succeed at it. Well, all of your growth took place in your failure. The second that you beat that level, it's not teaching you anymore. And so we go on until we, we hit a point where we fail again. And, um, so all growth happens in failure, you know? And, uh, so I'm always open. Uh, here's a great one with the kids. We were doing a rope swing and, uh, had a big piece of rope and tossed it over a limb and set up a rope swing with the kids. And at the end of the day, we were trying to throw the rope back over and they're all expecting their fearless leader to be able to do this perfectly. And of course I wound up with the giant nest of tangled ropes in the top of the tree and had to cut the ropes loose and, and uh, eventually came back later and wound up climbing up into the tree and removing everything, but turned to the kids and said, I failed and was willing to fail in front of them. Um, fire is a, is will teach you humility faster than anything. Fire hates arrogance. And one of the things that I do when I teach friction fire is I seldom will be the one that gets the coal. I typically make the students do it. You know, I'm there throughout supervising and talking them through it. But the reason I do that is because when I'm by myself, I can get a coal, I'd say 90% of the time with the Bodro kit. But if I'm teaching in front of people and I say, here's how you get a coal, I promise you that is going to be the time that I do not get one. Yeah, and, I, uh, I hear that again and again from people, in, you know, in the wilderness, wilderness world. I don't, do you think it's just like the pressure? You know, I, I believe that, that there is something to be said for the fact that there is a presence that we're unaware of that um, is demanding gratitude and respect. And I feel like when it's me trying to dominate this process of the bow drill and dominate this process of, of friction fire, that that it's never going to happen. That's that's not the way it works. There, you know, when I go into a space of gratitude, when I go into a space of humility and thankfulness, um, that's when I get the call. And so sometimes when you're teaching, it's hard to achieve that space, you know. And it's something that, that we're all that any teacher is either working on or should be working on. Right. Yeah, that's it's so it's such an interesting insight. And when you look at the kids and they're trying to understand this sense of humility, you know, we they don't come mm-hmm. from a world where we're very humble about things, where we kind of take our time learning things. And so how how do they view failure and and how is it for them trying to learn these skills? Because I know you, you know, work, I know you work with adults too, but I've seen you work mm-hmm. um primarily in the setting with with kids and my own kids. Mhm. Mm-hmm. You know, I they're I believe that all people, including children, will rise to the level of expectation that is set for them. And I feel like when we're out there that if we if we have a discussion about failure and we disarm failure and we look at failure as learning, they're going to receive that. You know, I um, one of my failings when I first started teaching, um, I trained with Chris for uh, Chris Morosky with for a season. And I remember at one point he had the kids get into a circle. 
And he stood there and he said, okay, everyone get into a circle. And then he just stood and he waited. And the kids at first were struggling with it. And then he would start to say things like, we know what a circle looks like. It's the shape of the sun. It's the rings of the tree. And he would give examples of a circle. And he waited. And I remember at one point, I said, okay, everybody hold hands. Now everybody back up. Now everybody drop your hands. Great, we're in a circle. And later, Chris and I talked about it. And he said, you know, I appreciate you doing that, but I don't feel like the kids learned anything. And it was such a brilliant moment for me as an instructor to realize that what I'd done was short. I, I took a shortcut in the process of those kids learning something as, as a village, as a community, and doing that on their own. And so now I've adopted that way. And I do a lot of discussing with the kids about failure is, is not a bad thing. And this takes time to learn to do, you know, and sometimes... I do wonder, like, uh, one of the things that I talk about with the kids is sometimes you see this desire to be the leader or to be first, that if we're going to cross something, there's a push for, uh, I want to be the first one to cross it, or I'm in front, or I'm walking next to Sean, or you cut. When we're going on a hike in the woods, there's no line, there's no cutting. It's, you know, it's, we're hiking in the woods. Right. And, and so um, I often will talk about how the leader is seldom in the front unless it's necessary. That if we cross a stream, oftentimes I will go out to the middle of the stream and I will help everyone across. And that puts me in the middle and then at the end. And then if a decision needs to be made on which way we go, I'll return to the front. Um, and I remember really strongly discussing this. And then one of my parents told me later that their son was at a playground and there was an older kid and he was kind of in charge. And, and, uh, he said to the kids, well, I'm going to go first because I'm the leader. And one of the kids looked at him confused and said, no, the leader goes last. And that was just so rewarding to me that in his, in his mind, he understood what we were talking about and he understood the concept. And it became so foreign to him that this older kid, this leader, didn't understand that leaders don't always go first. It's amazing. It's, it's yeah. just so different than... The world, especially as a parent, you know, the world that I see my kids live here in Los Angeles. I mean, one of the first things my daughter said when she came out of, we just, LAUSD started super early. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's the middle of August. We just had our first, our first week of school. And she said, well, I'm, guess what? I get to be the, one of the first things she said is I get to be the line leader, um, mm -hmm. you know, going to and from lunch for the next two weeks. And like, that's how kids move in the in the world that we've created in the city like they're used to going first and moving in a line and not really moving in this free way in the landscape that it's i don't know it's it's amazing how quickly they kind of get that concept though once they're in that environment absolutely absolutely and you know and i think that there is there's benefit to learning to live in that world. I don't want to take away from it, but I also am very, very excited to be offering uh, an alternative, you know, to giving, giving them another way to look at it when we head out into the woods, you yeah. know. Uh, another one of the great lessons I learned from Chris is, um, you know, when we're, when we're asked what time is it, the answer is usually daytime. And we don't have a set time that we have lunch, we have hungry time, you know. And, yeah, and right. It, yeah. Learning to listen to those signals that, you know, no one really does anymore. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. It's amazing how many kids are never even allowed to be hungry. I notice that all the time. It's just like a constant stream of snacks for like fear that we're going to be hungry and like have mm -hmm. to listen to this innate signal to tell us. It's yeah, that could, that could be a whole nother conversation. Um, but yeah. you, no, I agree with you. I think that, you know, um, you know, one of the things that we're not teaching the kids as often as I, as I really feel we should is discomfort. And discomfort is okay. There's a lot to be learned in discomfort. So one of the things that I do is, you know, my program runs rain or shine. And I've taken, you know, there's sometimes that people won't show up, but you'd be surprised on a day that is pouring down rain, I will still have six or seven kids show up. And if they're willing to go out, I'm willing to go out with them. And, and I feel like there is a lot to be learned about accepting the terms of your reality and accepting the position that we're in and learning that discomfort is not bad. 
No, and I love that. I mean, and some of the most memorable things and like the most fun happens when you're in the rain or when you like have mm-hmm. to run away from the thunderstorm. And, and that's one of the things I kind of miss living in LA is that it's it's just so nice all the time. You don't get to yeah. experience that like, oh, we're rolling in the snow. And yeah, I miss that. And it's it's something that I try to teach all the time. I mean, even when my kids are hungry. I, I say, you know, it's okay to be hungry. It's okay to wait. It's okay to feel like anxious about things because that's your body trying to tell you something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I remember one of the times that um, you were out with us and your daughters were out with us and, and we had, um, we had some angry wasps. And oh, yeah. I remember, yeah, and I remember that we had a couple of stings and everything was fine. Um, Everyone, you know, there was no allergic reactions. There was no adverse reactions. Everyone is fine. Within 20 minutes, it was less painful and more itchy, but we were able to treat with plant medicine. And now when, when I hear the students look back on that, they talk more about treating it with plant medicine than they do the actual action. And there was so much. Now, that was, that's a pretty substantial form of discomfort. Um, for for people of that age, and that's not usually what I'm talking about. Right, and I will note for people who are one. interested in taking your class, I, that that's unusual for your class. I mean, that we ran into a nest that day. Um, yeah, it absolutely. was a great learning experience. Absolutely. But I don't want people to think that like it's just danger everywhere we go because that's not how it is every time we're out there. Just as a quality. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was absolutely a fluke. That was you know that's something incredibly uncommon. Um, but you know, it was an experience that happened, and I was and I was glad that the children took away what they did from it, and that they learned from it. You know. Well, what's amazing is the the children learned so much from it. I I was really curious how the parents were going to react, um, and mm-hmm. I was curious. I know my own instinct. I mean, my own reaction was like, okay, everyone's okay, so no one got hurt, and this is part of being out in the wild. I mean, when we're going to be in mm-hmm. not our environment, not our built urban landscape anymore. We have to sort of accept that these are things that can happen. But I also was like, oh my God, I'm going to get home and my husband's going to be like, why are you doing this class with them? I don't want them getting stung. And I was kind of mm-hmm. waiting for that to see if that reaction happened with the par- By the way, my husband didn't have that reaction, which was great. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, I can imagine that a lot of parents would, that might be like too much for some parents. Like they want their kids to be out in nature, but they don't want to have to deal with every part of it. And and I was wondering how you feel about that. Like, is that what you witness? What, what are your thoughts on that whole yeah, parent yeah, equation? I, I, yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that um, most of the parents that are, that are willing to sign their kids up for a class like mine, you know, that understand that we're going to go on long hikes and we're going to be, you know, um, very safely carving with knives that we're going to be, you know, dealing with fire and eating plants off of the trail, that they're, they're in it for the experience and they're in it for all parts of the experience. So I've been very blessed that most of the parents, you know, are with us and open to that. Um, I think that, you know, again, like you said, I, you know, it's not like part of my course is, okay, today's beasting day. <laughs> Let's go rile up some beef. <laughs> right. You know. Today's slash yourself with a knife day. And yeah, so exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, you know, but I mean, accidents are going to happen anywhere. You know, it's, it, it, um, they're going to happen in their bedroom with Legos, you know, it's that things are going to happen. And so that's, there's uh, no contingency plan for that. But fortunately, mo- you know, I, I was even when it when it ended, I was very concerned for everyone. And I remember a couple of the parents going, Sean, relax. It's okay. You know? Right, right. So, and that's typically the reaction, you know. Yeah. And it's so interesting that you just made me think of a really important thing I've been thinking a lot about lately, which is mm-hmm. this um, idea of accepted risk that, you know, we live mm-hmm. in LA every day and accept all these crazy risks around us. Like we're driving these thousand these machines that weigh thousands of pounds at like high speeds hurtling down <laughs> these freeways and they could collide at any time and um you know we're, we're breathing in all this industrial pollution and all of these things that we just mm-hmm. sort of accept as the way the world is and bee stings in retrospect somehow seem really scary to us because that's not the world we live in anymore and so we live in this world where we kind of accept horrible risks and and horrible things happening every day yeah, I, I would wager that statistically taking a shower is probably more dangerous than, you know, 
going for a, a, a couple mile hike with me, you know, <laughs> like if you really look at the accidents and the number of, you know, of, of injuries, it's probably more dangerous to drive to the, the park than it is to walk around in the park. Right. You know? and, well, and I, yeah, I can, I can definitely attest to that because the, one of the ironies of going to take your wonderful class is that I have to be on the freeway for like an hour just to get out of LA and into mm-hmm. the campground or into, you know, the wilderness park. Um, yeah, it's it's something that I think it's really a mindset that needs to change, that we just need to be more comfortable. I, at least my own feeling is that the more I am in that world, the more comfortable I do feel. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's, yeah, it's it's yeah. interesting. I, it's something I, I talk to parents a lot about who are interested in taking the class and interested in going camping, for instance, but mm-hmm. kind of balk when they, they start to think about the discomforts of it. Yeah, you know, I, I mentioned this earlier, and and uh, I learned this really from I've had I had amazing climbing instructors, and um, it's really wise people. And one of them, he told me, you know, pain is the touchstone of spiritual progress, and and I uh, also learned from him the other phrase that I use a lot, which is accept the circumstances of your reality. And so the irony is that I've done my longest climb was twenty three hundred feet, and uh, I am terrified of heights. So, but I choose to live, uh, to place myself in, in situations of discomfort to grow. I understand that climbing is, is inherently dangerous, but uh, the system is safe and I trust the system. And so we're using gear, we're using ropes. And sometimes I will be, you know, in, in what's called a hanging belay where I've got gear fixed into the rock and I'm literally hanging from this gear while I'm, you know, feeding out the rope for the other climber. And there's a lot of time to look down a thousand feet at that point. And I find that at first my heart is racing and my palms are sweaty and, you know, and, and uh, my mouth is dry. But within three or four minutes, that's the circumstances of my reality. And your brain will really adapt very quickly. And after a while, I quit thinking about it. And it's ironic to me that, that I can get to that point by the time I get to the top of the cliff every time. But every new climb... I go back to that place of fear and discomfort. But I believe that that's something that we can all do in our lives, that it's it's healthy to do something that scares you a little bit every day. It doesn't have to be as extreme as rock climbing, but really find that place of growth, find that place of, of uh, pushing your envelope, learning something new. Let yourself get into failure. Let yourself get into discomfort. You will blow open wide, wide worlds by just taking that step, you know, and uh my another big factor with that is um i'll be halfway up a cliff you know 45 feet up and then all of a sudden my brain starts going did you close your carabiner did you tie your knot right did you check your belayer you know is that gear placed right and i start double checking everything while i'm climbing and then down from below me i'll hear my friend mike or pete yell up at me uh, turn off the mental motion picture and they can see me running the cinematic movie in my brain of me, me falling, you know, yeah, that's and, I have to go, and I have to go, okay, you're right. And turn it off. So the other thing that I would say is that if you're going to enter that world of discomfort, turn off the mental motion picture, you know, do the thing that scares you a little bit, push your envelope. Right. It's so important. And the other side of that too, is that if you don't turn that off, then you can't really enjoy it. So if mm-hmm. I'm going for a beautiful hike and all I'm thinking about is the mountain lion warning at the beginning mm-hmm. of the trail, it, then you're, you're kind of missing the opportunity to actually just enjoy the moment. I know that sounds Absolutely. cliche, but yeah, it's it, but it's hard to do because I think, you know, when you talk about like accepting the circumstances of our reality, like the reality of our day-to-day world is that we are on such heightened alert all the time, especially in an mm-hmm. urban environment. Um, there's just so much that triggers that adrenaline. And um, I, I just, I would love to hear your thoughts on like, how do you balance it all? I mean, first of all, like, why did you pick LA to begin with? I'm really curious, mm-hmm. just because you, you have spent so much time being obsessed with this idea of being immersed in the natural world. So why LA? And now that you are in LA, how do you, how do you balance it? Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, um, it's very funny. Never say never. Um, I, if you had asked me a few years ago, I would have said that I would never move to LA, that it's too, it's too many people. It's too big. It intimidates me. It's scary, you know, but, um, the, I just find that the universe has a way of going, Oh, really? (laughs) So, um, so Chris actually, um, if you know anything about his backstory, he spent, um, 
he spent many, many years in a very isolated state and then randomly moved to LA and started the program. And then when he decided to leave LA and to move up to the Portland area, um, he called me and asked if I would be willing to come and take over the program. And you're and, talking about the Apprentice of the Wild program, right? Yeah, Appren- Apprentice of the Wild. Yeah. So he went up to do to start Wisdom Keepers and to start an Apprentice of the Wild up in Portland. And he needed an instructor to take over the Los Angeles Apprentice of the Wild. And so um, at first, I, you know, I said, well, it's something I'd like to consider. It's something I'd like to talk about. I talked about it with my partner. And she and I had one conversation and called Chris back and said, we'll do it. And it just seemed like... Um, another opportunity to accept the circumstances of my reality and to walk through this door of fear and, you know, and what's the worst case scenario? It doesn't work out. And, and I move back to my comfort zone, you know, or the flip side of that is that I wind up running this amazing program and I meet amazing people and I get to do amazing podcasts, you know, the first episode of amazing podcasts and meet, <laughs> Thank you. you know, so yeah, so it's, um, it, that's really what the deciding factor was. I, I saw the opportunity, the door was open, and I decided to walk through it. Now that I'm here, um, the balance for me, part of it is uh, an interesting side note. And, you know, at 45 minutes into the interview, it's probably a wrong time to bring up this this whole tangent. But I'm also a pretty optimistic futurist in a lot of sense. Like, I, I don't have as much of a problem with technology as many uh, people who are in this field do. Um, there's a lot of things that, that get me really excited. And so I can find that balance there. Um, but really the answer is, is I get out to whatever wilderness I can as often as I can, whether it's hiking or whether it's down to the beach or whether it's, you know, um, going into the ocean, just, you know, any opportunity I can get into an area that's green and the pace slows down. That's how I, I balance yeah. I, and I try to do it too, but I am one of those people who just, like you said, is more maybe fearful of the of t- the technology or maybe just more easily overwhelmed. And I, I'm kind of like a Luddite naturally. So I'd mm-hmm. love to, I, I love hearing the perspective that you're not, uh, you don't have such a negative view of all this technology. So yeah, th- that kind of brings me toward one of my last questions, which is what mm-hmm. is your vision for Los Angeles and for the future? And, and how do you see, do you see that a world where we can seamlessly blend between this highly techno- technological world we've created and the natural world? I mean, like, what what would be like your dream world? Um, wow. Um, I haven't really thought of what my dream world would be. Um, I, I think the, the first part of that is easier for me to answer. Um, so I'm going to reference a... Um, something very quickly if you haven't checked out steven pinker's myth of violence it's pretty remarkable and it's interesting food for thought i think that there's a lot of arguments that can be presented against it but it's also really refreshing to listen to and basically steven pinker's myth of violence is that um, right now the potential for dying at the hands of another human being is lower than it has ever been in history Um, and you know, it's a pretty big claim, but I think he does a pretty good job of substantiating it. And again, I'm not saying that I totally agree with it. I'm just telling you what it's about. But, um, when I listen to things like that, um, I think about the fact that there's a lot of bad that's going on with technology in the world. And there's a lot of good that's going on with technology in the world that, um, if we use these things, right, there's a connection that's happening across the world. That's unifying us. Um, and so I think that the answer to your question is, um, there has to be a way that we can blend. There is no other option that, that technology is not going to go away. Um, and I'm hoping that eventually um, we're going to start realizing that the old ways are just as important because I don't think that the world can sustain the trend that we're on. So either... Um, this sounds so pessimistic, but I promise I'm, I'm being optimistic when I say this. Either it's going to come crashing down or we're going to learn how to blend. And I really believe that, that that's what it's headed for. So I don't know what that looks like, but I just know that it's the only, it's the only ending I see that works, you know, is us figuring out how to balance, us figuring out that um, solar is a, is a renewable energy and, and finding a clean way to do things, finding a, a better way to do things. I think that permaculture um, 
should be the wave of the future that learning to live in a sustainable way um, is what the future has to be. Yeah, I I think that's a wonderful vision. And and so you, it, it sounds like you are not innately a doomsdayer then, that you do have this hopeful view. I try to. I try okay, to. So you have your I moments that, just like all of yeah. us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's times that I look at the world and I'm and I just think, oh, what are we doing? You know? But I try to always look at it and I try to believe in the good in man um, as much as I possibly can. Right. And I try and I try to see that the trend is uh, the next generation that's coming up behind us, they are they are becoming more green and more eco smart. And, and I'm just so hopeful that that trend is going to continue. Yeah, that's, I hope so too. Cause I, for every person who's f- so excited about your class and wants to put their kids in it, I see 10 kids on iPhones in the supermarket and a restaurant, but I, <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm going to replay this podcast and listen to your words because it's going to give me hope. And so I, I really appreciate that. Thank you. Um, Absolutely. So yeah, I just would love to know, and I'm sure our listeners would love to know, where can they follow you? What are you doing next? Um, where can they stay in touch? Tell me, tell us about that. Sure. Yeah. Uh, the easiest way is um, wisdomkeepers.us. And then there's a link to uh, Apprentice of the Wild Los Angeles. We have a Facebook page right now. Um, and we have our fall classes that are going to be starting in September. We still have signups. Um, if you email apprenticeofthewild at gmail.com, you can request information. And we'll be happy to send information out. Um, and uh, we are also looking at trying to do more classes for adults. So if uh, if you're also listening and thinking, well, this would be great for my kids, but I'd love to do it too. That's coming up. As a matter of fact, I'm looking forward to seeing Jennifer at a class this weekend where we're going to do some primitive skills in the woods. So Yeah, and I'm so excited you've been doing more of those classes because basically anything, any class that you do, I sign up for. As you know, with the, with the Bedouin basket, basket weaving workshop, which I loved. So I, I just think it's wonderful. Just keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. Your basket was beautiful, by the way. Thank you again for tuning into this first episode of the Uncivilized Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please subscribe on iTunes and consider leaving us a rating, hopefully a five-star rating, but I'll leave that up to you. That's going to help me bring you even more unique and fascinating and high-profile guests later on this first season. I would also love to hear your thoughts about the show on my Instagram page. That's at Jennifer Grayson one. And over there, I'll be posting not only more about this episode, but also all the fun ways that I and my family are uncivilizing in our day-to-day life here in Los Angeles. So if you are interested in what's coming next, I've actually released the first three episodes of the show all at once for the launch so that if you enjoyed this one, you can dive right into the next two. And after that, I will be back every Monday with a new episode of the uncivilized podcast. See you then.